you hear me? I can hear you, sir. Great, man. Hey, going? Right here. He's coming over in a second. No problemo. Yeah, man. What's it? You're in Seattle, right? Yeah, we're in Seattle. Nice. They, they put us, man, this club, they have their own condo complex kind of thing, and they put us up in a condo, and they give us a car. It's like... They give you a car? Yeah, it's the weirdest jazz club experience I've ever had. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm being set up for something. You know what I mean? They have money. <laughs> well, they pretend to have money. Well, they, they, the guy just got his shit together, you know, which was like, why have a jazz club then? You know, <laughs> it's, it's probably yeah, it's probably a front for for a drug uh, a drug dealer. Maybe you know. <laughs> yeah, you know. So yeah, but uh, it's it's been a great tour, man, with these guys. Really, you know, with John and Martin, it's been great. So, all our listeners, welcome to Guitar Wank. I'm here with Bruce Form when he's out on the road. This is Guitar Wank on the road edition. Mm-hmm. And, right. Uh, well, it looks like you're on the road too. You know, I mean, I know people can't see this, and it's a good thing the way I look. Yeah. But um, you, you appear to be in a, a prison cell with a very comfortable bed. Yeah. Well, it's not. It's just my little bedroom studio here, and it's the back end of it. Uh huh. The front I see. end is is all my gear and stuff. But um, so who are you on the road with? I'm on the road with the Great Guitars, which is, of course, um, a re enactment of the original band which was charlie bird barney kessel and herb ellis and uh, martin taylor and john jorgensen and i are doing it and both martin and i had subbed in the original band and martin is the leader he's kind of kept the flame going right and he does it with various guys around the world and he's got some guys in europe he uses and on the east coast john did the tour with frank vignola on guitar yeah and then I've been doing the Western half, you know, Mr. Cowboy Dude. So, um, and I've got, of course, the great thing is I'm bringing Barney's guitar back on the road with the great guitars, which is really cool. How yeah. cool is that? Another full yeah. set, right? Yeah. And so um, I thought uh, I'd take this opportunity to probably get both of them on the show, but I wanted to do them both separately so that they could each, you know, talk about all their stuff because they both have so much going on. Well, then they have our styles and feels to me like our styles and personality uh, are really, really great. But I, of course, when they talk behind my back, I don't know what they really say, but I think it's going good. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, they're they're, uh, they're doing their thing behind your back. Um, So you guys are in Seattle. Yeah. uh, Venue. What's the venue? The venue is called uh, Demetrio's Jazz Alley. It's, oh, it's wow. been the it's been the main jazz club of Seattle for oh 30, 40 years. I mean, I played here at least thirty years ago. You know, at that same club. So, wow, nice. You know, yet again, another weird thing—a successful jazz club. You know. Yeah. Right. And I mean, especially in this day and age. But the, how cool is that? Yeah. Yeah. He's really got. I mean, you know, he should probably give us a class or a seminar and how to do this you know but it, it might be the old you know how to have a you know how to have a million dollars in jazz start with two million you know <laughs> <laughs> exactly so anyways i'd like to 
introduce to us to everybody, somebody who everybody knows, John Jorgensen. And John yes, Jorgensen. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We have actually met before. You wouldn't remember because it was many years ago. I was in, I was delivering flowers at the time on, um, I think, uh, which I can't, Sunset Boulevard. And I walked into an elevator and you were in the elevator and I was like, John Jorgensen. And we talked briefly and you said you were going to see your manager on the top floor or something. This is in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. Okay, the, the, the 9,000 building. Yes, yes. Oh, do you remember who you were delivering flowers for? No, I do not. <laughs> I do try to forget those days. But I was just like, oh, my God. And I was on such a uh, helicaster's kickback then um, as everyone was, and it was just such a treat to meet you. But I was so oh. bummed because I didn't get to – I wanted to talk to you more, but it was like I'm delivering you, flowers. and You, you were working. Me. I was on my – yeah. You know, I think – I think that was actually a meeting about some sort of distribution for the Helicaster's albums. Oh, do you wow. remember the year? What do you remember what year it would be? This would be two. Uh, wow, it might even be ninety nine or two thousand ninety, maybe ninety eight. Yeah, maybe some somewhere in then. I remember the the band Chicago had made their own label, had their own record label. And they were, I think, maybe going to distribute the Helicasters product at that time. Oh, wow. So Michael Nesmith was the guy who owned the label that we were on originally. Right. And we would never even, no one would know the Helicasters without Michael. He came to see us at the Palomino one time. And I mean, well, we hadn't even planned to be a band. We just were going to do one gig for fun, right? Oh, wow. Really? Because we were always, you know, the three of us were always in bands backing up singers or whatever. And we said, why don't we do like a, you know, three tenors slash three dog night, except make it just guitars. The guitars are the singers, you yeah. know, and let's do that for fun. And, and instead of doing what people expect, which would be like just chicken picking jam and blues jam and whatever, let's actually do songs. You know, and, and Jerry grew up with the Shadows in England, so he was well, you know, into the melodic guitar instrumental thing, and so that's what we did. And then at the end of that first gig in the Palomino, all these guitar players came up. When are you guys playing again? I have to bring my friends. And I'm like, we're not. This is this is not a real thing. And they said, no, you have to do another gig. So I think like the second gig, Michael Nesmith came. And he had a label and he said, you know, I'd, I'd like you guys to be on my label. And so they went, oh, okay, well, we better, we better learn more songs than the 45 minute set <laughs> that we have. <laughs> and, uh, and then at some point, uh, you know, we released our first album, I think it was 1993. And we were shocked, I mean, really shocked to win uh, Album of the Year from Guitar Player Magazine and Country Album of the Year. Wow. You know, and that was toward the end of the shred days, yep. you know? And I think what happened is all the people who were like, they'd already been into shred and they were a little bit tired of, of that sound and the, you know, the whole thing had gotten a little bit samey, you know? And here, so here was still was technical guitar music but it had 
more melody. It was different tones, not always distortion and, and some humor, you know, and stuff like that. So man, we were, I don't know. The right really. time, the right time. Yeah, time, you know, I mean, they always say that's a cliche timing, but, but seriously, it was, you know, we didn't plan it, but it, it just worked out that way. And, and then our, our second album was released in 95, I think. And shortly after that, Michael Nesbitt's company got sued by PBS because uh, they were distributing PBS home video. And PBS, at the time they made the deal, didn't see any value in programming that had already been shown. Mm-hmm. They thought, oh, it's been broadcast. It's not worth anything. Nesmith went, yeah, I think people would like to see the Civil War series again. They right. might like to own it even. Ah. So he was making a fortune. Oh, off the Ken Burns stuff. Well, not only that, but all, yeah. all of PBS's stuff. Oh. So he was selling it and distributing at home video, uh-huh. you know, VHS tapes of that. And they d- didn't realize, they didn't like how much money he was making. <laughs> of and they tried to get out of the deal. And so there was a big lawsuit. He had to shut down his company. And he ended up winning to like $46 million because he was in the right. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, he shut down the company. And as a really good guy, you know, from artist's perspective, he gave us back our masters and rights to our first two albums. So, you know, they could have been just lost in some kind of a shuffle, yeah. but he was really, really nice. And, and then we did our third album on our own, you know, and I think we're probably making some kind of distribution deal at the time for that. Wow. So, how, now how long, what was the time period for, for the Hallicasters? Probably, uh, it was probably the 90s, basically. Right, right. I think we started... You know, it might have been a year or a year and a half or maybe even two years before our album came out that we, since the time we did a first gig. And then the the last gig, the last true gig was probably a, a music fair in England, you know, like the, the NAMM show of England, Birmingham Music Fair or something like that right. in 2000, maybe 2001. So, it, but but during that time, uh, that's when I started. I started touring with Elton John in 1995, so that put a pretty big crimp in the ability to tour and stuff like that. And uh, you know, plus as we toured and did more stuff together, you know, we realized that our original intention, like I said, had never been to be a band. So it, you know, there was some interband politics shall we say <laughs> you know that happened or whatever uh, but you know we're all still friends jerry as you know maybe you don't he, he had a pretty severe stroke and he doesn't have use of his right hand or right side and he can't speak oh wow so i didn't know that he can still play if, if we hold a guitar like if i strum he can still do chords stuff but uh so that's you know really heartbreaking you know to have yeah. such an amazing player as him how, how old is jerry how old is he? he's probably early 70s maybe 
No, not at all. No, no. As we approach, yeah. Now it sounds really, really, really. uh, What's the word in the neighborhood? Yeah. Wow. He was a he was a bit older than me. Um, He grew up. He's American. His dad was a a tenor sax player and band leader, big band leader named Sam Donahue, and uh, his mom, I think, was. I think she might have been an actress or something. She used to date Cornell Roberts. Oh, wow. Bonanza, which is cool. Yeah. And uh, Jerry, he was, you know, he, he was in the height of stuff in London. He worked at Selmer's Music Shop, you know, so he remembers Justin Hayward from the Moody Blues coming in to buy his 335 there and stuff like that. And remembers going to see, before he moved to England, going to see Jerry McGee at some club you know, called the Sea Witch in Hollywood. Right. And Jerry, so, you know, Jerry's crazy, Jerry Donnie's crazy string bending, you know, multiple bands, opposite direction bands, behind the nut bands, you name it, any kind of bending, he was king. And he, he told me that he got the, some of his ideas for that from watching Jerry McGee. And Jerry McGee was trying to do Earl Scruggs he was playing some girl Scruggs songs where Scruggs had those tuners, you know, that would stop at certain notes. And so Jerry McGee was trying to imitate Earl Scruggs by bending behind the nut. Uh, and that's where Jerry got the idea. Uh, and then just took that and ran with it. Wow. So, so yeah. Damn. Cool. What about, what about Will Ray? What's Will up to? Um, I think he's going to flea markets. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. He loves like, Lee markets and he loves buying like oddball guitars he had one that was made out of like a a beehive or something you know <laughs> and another one made out of a toilet seat and then, like, you know cigar box guitars and he he, he kind of became the king of like you know cheap pawn shop guitars for a while i think he did a an article uh, ongoing article in one of the guitar magazines vintage or one of right. those about you know, pawn shops, special. like he was like kind of like the American pickers of yeah. uh, guitar before that was the thing. And I think he kind of still does that. Yeah. Nashville, North Carolina. Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen him in a while. I think he just maybe, oh, of course, none of us have been traveling playing, but I think he kind of stopped, you know, traveling to play a while back. Yeah. I think he, before that, he was maybe doing some clinics for GNL. So how I've always wanted to know how was it working with Elton John? How was it, and how long were you with Elton John for? Well, the, my first stint was like six years, ninety-five to two thousand one, and then since then I've been back a number of times. You know, I was telling Bruce earlier that it, it's kind of like the mafia. It once you're in, if you don't do something wrong or piss somebody off, then you're you're in. Right. So so I, I've been called, I, I call it called back to active duty a number of times since then. The most recent was on his interrupted three-year farewell tour uh, in 2019. I did a couple months uh, filling in for Davy Johnston yep. when some medical stuff going on. Um, and how, well, it, it's touring at the very highest level with an artist 
is completely badass. Who, I mean, in, in all those times, you know, I never hear Elton never sandbags. Even if he's really pissed off, he still gives 100%. He sings great. He plays great. He's never out of tune. He's never out of time. He never hits wrong chords. It's, he's, and he's, he doesn't micromanage either. You know, he, 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 he wants you to play what kind of what you want to play. Uh, but of course, all the band members, they know the audience wants to hear it like the record. And right. So you don't want to spew some bullshit over Daniel or whatever. Yeah. You just want to hear that song, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, the really funny thing happened on this, on this last tour, you know, when I, when I first was with him in the 90s, um, I was the second guitarist. Davey Johnston was there as well. And that was kind of a big reason why I took accepted the gig because I love Davey. He's a great guy and, you know, super energetic player. And, and I thought, if I'm going to be around the world with somebody, this guy's going to know all the good restaurants, all the good <laughs> We're going to have a good time. And I was right. Yeah. And so on that, those tours, I played a lot of instruments, saxophone and pedal steel and mandolin and acoustic guitar, 12 string, whatever color, you know, a lot of color instruments and sang a lot too, a lot of singing and singing with Elton John was awesome. You know, yeah. there's not the word for it. Um, but the last time I was actually filling in for Dave, so I was playing the only guitar, you know, and uh, certain things that I'd played so many times, I didn't really study them again because they were in my mind. But I forgot that I hadn't played the, you know, part one. I was playing part two. So, so we were doing uh, Love Lies Bleeding. And, and that's one of the more guitar-y songs, you know. And the solo part, there's three or four phrases. And they're similar, but they sort of build in intensity as, as you go. And... And I realized that Elton takes his cue of coming back in from the whatever the last phrase is, you know. Yeah. I wasn't doing it quite right, you know. And I don't know, one or two days into the tour, we were on the, his plane, you know, leaving a gig. And, and he said, well, I, John, I don't want to be a bore, but would you just mind, you know, that last phrase, da, 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 doing it like that. And, and everybody else in the band, like, looked at me like unbelievable, basically that, that he was sort of apologizing for asking me to play it correctly. You know, <laughs> that's just how respectful he is, you um, know, to, for the other musicians. He's just uh, fabulous and great sound guys, great monitor guys. You know, your gear is set up perfectly when you get there. And, yeah. I mean, probably the most fun was on this last one was recording with him. He was writing a new musical, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, which I don't, I'm not a musical guy. I usually just, I, usually breaking the song and all that just kind of makes my skin crawl. But the songs that he wrote for this, you, you would you, I would defy anybody to come out of that musical and not remember those songs. They're that type of songs. And the lyrics are really funny and poignant and perfect to move the story along. And so to, to get to record and create the arrangements for those kind of from scratch 
with him was really, really, that was phenomenal and wow. creative. Yeah. And, wow. You know, I, I never saw the, the musical. I mean, I saw the movie, of course. Well, it hasn't come out yet. Oh, okay. So we were creating the music in 2019. Oh, so it's, and then fun, it was, oh, so, so it's like an extension of the, the, the book and the movie. Well, it's the movie made into a musical. Oh, great. As far as I, yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. So it's very funny. Yeah. Really, and so it was supposed to go into workshop is what mm -hmm. they call it with those kind of things in Chicago and then got delayed, of course. So I think maybe it's being workshop now. Oh, good. You know, so in the next year or two, it'll probably be you know, yep. on Broadway, as George Benson says, <laughs> or the guys before him, yeah, or the drifters, <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of gear were you using on the Elton on the Elton gig? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that, <laughs> because you know, I I love gear, and and I love the opportunity to. I, I feel like I usually tailor every setup to a different gig. Yeah. So. No, I had had a you know different setups for playing with Elton before. This one has to be a new, different setup. So uh, I used two two different amps. One was called a Mezza Barba. Oh wow! And I had been on vacation with my wife in Italy, and visiting a friend who used to put on the Suave Guitar Festival in Suave, which was an incredible festival where that's where I really got to know uh, like Tommy Emanuel. We became friends there and uh, Tony McManus and Pedro Javier Gonzalez and all these great guitarists. Anyway, uh, Pierre Paul is one of those guys that kind of knows everyone. And we were visiting him in a very small town in Farnese, which is north of Rome. One of the, a place where we, you know how they have like you could buy a, a home in Italy for a euro if you restore it. It's, it's one of those kind of places. So we were look, actually looking there to maybe buy some. So we're in this tiny village, one restaurant, even barely. Uh, and my Pierre Paulo says, Hey, do you want to meet the amp builder who lives here? I'm like, Come on, really? <laughs> he said, Yeah. So we went down to visit uh, this shop and this. You know, Italian guy, Mezzobarma means half beard in Italian. And uh, went to his shop and you see this amazingly beautiful work, you know, which kind of reminded me of Matchless in the way that everything was, the wires were bent so perfectly and everything was looked beautiful inside there. And, but they looked to me like amps that were more for like high gain metal guys, you know, than me. But I, I plugged into one of his, like an 18-watt combo, looked like the size of a deluxe or something. And I went, wow, the tone was... I said, I said I'm not usually, you know, my, my jam is more like a vintage Vox or a matchless, you know? And he said, oh, well, I learned a lot about voicing amps from listening to matchless amps. Yeah. So, and so he you says... You are the matchless man, sir, right? Well, yes. <laughs> yes. You, you guided Samson, right? You guided him. I did, yeah. I, 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 I pushed him into creating that, Yeah. Uh, which is a whole other story. But, you know, then he said, well, you know, I know this is not your thing, but try plugging into this other amp. 
And usually distortion on an amp, uh, I don't know, it just the overdrive or whatever, it just never sounds that good to me. Something loud, something that's supposed to be loud turned down soft. I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't, right. But I plugged in and I'm like, holy crap, the, is the distortion was just like incredible sounding. So I ended up with, with one of his heads. He, he, he added my clean tone thing. I always love the EF 86. That's the tube that's in a box AC 15, some early AC thirties. That tube is just juicy and good and it's beautiful, clean, but it kind of, you can kind of push it. Anyway, he added a, a channel with just that. So I'd have a, you know, my normal clean sound that I'm used to. And then, uh, you know, like a two other channels. So it was a three stage amp, pretty nice. And wow. so that into a, one of his 412 cabinets, which is very much like a 60s Marshall cab. And I put four of those Ruby Alnico 12s in there that had just come out from Celestian. They, I think I was the first one to get some because they weren't, I'd seen them at NAM, but they weren't available yet. And I sort of name dropped Elton. So, the, <laughs> so those are in, in, in one of, in a portal cabinet. And then I always have to have a box on stage. I just have to, it's just, it's a rule. And so I had another box, a box 412 old sovereign cabinet from the sixties that I put those Ruby 12s in and a head that was a, a recreation of a box head called a 730 which is a hybrid head in between. They're all tube models and they're all solid state models in 66 for a short period of time. They made some models that had a solid state front end and a tube power section. And these were the amps that were on Dr. Robert in your bird can sing paperback writer, uh, Sergeant peppers. Uh, and they, they had built in germanium fuzz in these amps. They were the first amps to ever have built-in thoughts, basically. Mm -hmm. And they had, unlike most Fox amps, they had a mid-range control that just roared. If you turn that thing up, it's just, you know, you could go from scoop fender blackface to in-your-face super mids. So, uh, and, and I guess there was only like 100 of those built and maybe 25 exist still. And so I have one of the original ones. Uh, there's a guy named Stephen Walsh in England who was replicating those. So I ordered one of those. And so that sat on the box 412 cabinet. So it was a Mezzabar. It was like a very modern amp and a very vintage amp together. Now, would, you, you keep the sound mono? You don't go stereo? Um, I, did, I did go stereo with those two, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, and the stereo came from uh, an old Boss reverb pedal. Yeah. The RV2. Yeah. Of that pedal. Yeah. Wow. Not a three, four, five, six, or seven, but the two. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I've always been such a huge fan, and I'm a huge fan of Brad Paisley, and he, you know, he, he bows down to you, sir, as the inspiration for his tone, and Brad's got pretty bitchin' tone too, so, um, you yeah. know. Those he, he, yeah, he. I, I met him when he was fourteen. I think he he came to a show, uh, 
Well, at that time, he was already in a house band of uh, the Wheeling, West Virginia Jamboree. So sort of like a sort of like a Grand Ole Opry type of thing, you know, like a multi-artist country show. And as a, you know, that young already in the house band. And uh, I was touring with the Desert Rose Band at the time. And my setup then was I had two vintage box AC30s on stands like the Beatles. And, uh, you know, a lot of vintage guitars, Rickenbacker and, and uh, Dan Electro, Six String Bass and Telly and whatever. And I was kind of proud of my gear, as you can tell. I'm kind of a gearhead. And in country music in those days, nobody ever asked me about my gear. You know, I'd be like all proud and no one would ever mention anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Until this at this Wheeling, West Virginia Jamboree and this kid comes up and says, are those English AC-30s? I said, yeah. Is that a vintage Rickenbacker? Yeah. You know, and I was like, wow, finally somebody notices. Yeah. You know? And uh, and then a little while later, I got a fan letter, you know, through the Desert Rose Band fan club on notebook paper, you know, in pencil, cursive. And it was, you know, signed Brad Paisley. And I'd never, I didn't realize that that was a surname. I'd never met anybody with that surname. Yeah. You know, I had a Paisley Telecaster, but I didn't know it was a, so, so it stuck in my mind. And also most fan letters at that time were from girls, you know, never anything about music. And here was like from a guy talking about guitars and amp system. Yeah. So this is cool. And, uh, and then a bit later, uh, he contacted me again and he was at Belmont by this time. Right. Music in Nashville. And he was doing a, one of his school projects was you had to write a, a piece about somebody who you admired or inspired you or something like that. And he asked if he could come to a session that I was playing down the street, literally from Belmont, you know, cause you know, music row, but in those days it was, things were pretty much concentrated in a small area. Yeah. I think it was called Emerald Studios at that time. And I said, sure. I, I can't remember who the artist was. Because um, at that time, I was doing a lot of sessions in Nashville. And so he came and, you know, we kind of chatted and stuff. And then and I didn't see him for a few years after that. And I was playing a, an Academy of Country Music Awards show in Los Angeles at the Universal Amphitheater and, and a radio guy that I'd kind of known over the years, I'd known since Desert Roseman days, he said, you know, I, I just interviewed a young artist who was really influenced a lot by you. And uh, I said, what's his name? He said, his name is Brad Paisley. And I went, oh, I remember that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I got, I, I can't remember how I got his, his album, debut album, maybe from that guy or somebody. And I put it on and I went, okay, he has listened close because there was licks from Hello Trouble, there's licks <laughs> from here and there and the tone, you know, and I found out later that his, you know, after that gig that he saw, you know, when I met his dad, his dad says, oh, you're the guy, <laughs> you're responsible. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Brad, he would have lots and boxes, right? 
Exactly. He said he got, you know, Brad got on the phone and found some dealer in England that would send over a couple AC-30s and, and his dad had to drive him to like Philadelphia or some somewhere to, you know, pick these things up out of some international freight company or whatever. And, and he was so excited to get home and plug him in. But his dad made him wash the truck before, <laughs> before he could mess with the amps. And, and then when he finally got him in there, they had, of course, the British plugs. On the end. So even though there was a, you know, switchable transformer where you could set it to the right voltage, you had this big, weird plug, you know, and he's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was a Sunday, so it couldn't go to Radio Shack until the next day or something. But oh, man. man. Anyway, yeah, we, uh, the last time we got to spend some time together, I, I got to browse his. He's got a very nice collection of amps and stuff like that. I bet. I bet. I got, I got one of Brad's, uh, the DB4, Dr. Z. The DB. Oh, okay. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's it's kind of like a, a a box on steroids. I would say it sounds amazing. It's great. Is it? Uh, does it have the EF eighty six in it? No, it's got the the Gibson tubes. The they went more Gibson tubes. I can't think of the tubes they put in it now. But um, it's they actually stopped making them because there was some copyright with the name the DB four. Uh, so, but I've got the oh. head. And it sounds, it sounds fantastic. It's a great sounding amp. And, and like normal 30-watt power section, the four EL84s? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'd, ha yeah. I'd have to double check. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great sounding cabinet and head. And, uh, yeah, I love it. I love and what's it. in the cab? I've got uh, the gold, I think the gold Celestians in it. It's a, I've got a 1 by one by 12 cabinet for it. It's okay. a head, head and cabinet, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, uh, I have the gold and yeah, I have a, a gold in a single 12 too. It's pretty, you know, it's, it's very aggressive that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The gold. So if you were going to buy a Vox today, well, would you even buy a Vox today or, or would you only look for vintage? Uh, well, um, I have one of their hand-wired AC-15s, which... Well, already it's probably ten years old now. Right. Um, yeah. I, you know, not to be a snobby elitist, but I, I will be. They, <laughs> if, you could, if you could, if you can afford and find an old one, yeah, it's going to sound. It, it has a different sound. Right. You know, they're they're all within a range of a, of that character, but the the JMI ones from the sixties. They have a they have a sweetness and a, uh, a a different character than than new ones, right. and of course there's a lot of there's a lot of differences. You know they, they still sort of have the same Alnica speakers, but they're made in China now. They're not they're not you know made in England. The, there's printed circuit boards, different transformer. Everything's different. Yeah, yeah. And even if they have the same specs, as you know, each little different adds up and it's a kind of a different thing but yeah. yeah i would try i mean they're they made so many amps in the 60s you can you can get one for not a crazy high price right. yeah. probably no higher than a you know than one of the top of the line new ones but yeah. 
And uh, you've you obviously tried the JM. Is it the JMI? The remakes? Well, that company. Mm, mm. Let's see. How how can I delicately put it? Uh, <laughs> I think they were involved with the theft of uh, of a friend of mine's collection of guitars, oh, and wow. also using uh, Gary Hurst's name, who was the guy that developed the tone bender. You know, they used his involved in using his name on pedals without compensating him. Wow! Uh, creating fake Flying Bees and Les Pauls. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I, I wouldn't promote anything that those guys are involved with because and it's that. the same the same with your friend um from matchless who started at samson right yeah like, that's why the matchless samsons are so expensive because they're not like the mattresses made today right yes yeah. i mean you know and likely you know same thing with like the pre-cbs and all that kind of stuff uh, likely the components didn't change right away or anything like that but for me and not to get all too metaphysical or spiritual or anything, but the, the people that took over matchless company that kind of tricked Mark Sampson kind of think they kind of stole it away from him in a way they, they, they didn't say that they didn't do what they said they were going to do right in the agreement. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I, I spoke with them at one time because that was, the end of the year that I had a signature amp come out with matchless and they said, well, we're not going to pay you royalties. We're just not, we're not going to pay Celestian the money we owe them. We're not going to pay them the transformer manufacturers, the money we owe them. We're just going bankrupt. So we're not paying anyone. And then in two years, you know, this was a lawyer and he knew bankruptcy laws in two years. We'll just start again. And I said, dude, you know, the music business is kind of small. You know, people are going to know about this. You, 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 I don't think you can just do this and get away with it. But, I, you know, I guess like with, with everything, you can sort of get away with it. Right. You know, I mean, they still exist. And their, their product is probably fairly high quality. But the energy of people that do that, He's a dick. I don't play music through that, you know. Yeah, yeah. He sounds like he's a dick and we won't deal with that. But um so Well, yeah. What yeah, year was I can see was, that was probably uh nineteen ninety end of maybe nineteen ninety eight. Right. Okay. So I dealt with them before that. Yeah. Yeah. I was dealing with them in the early nineties and Rodney came right. I remember that. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that was, was that was early. Yeah, yeah, it was early at the company. Yeah, I have this yeah. friend who was there artist rep uh tom gilmore was his name i probably met tom yeah, at yeah. the time yeah, yeah. you know what interesting sort of tr side trivia is that mark sampson's the guy that designed them and and he was my repairman oh. at the time uh -huh. uh, because nobody at that time vox ac30s were not a thing yet in in la yeah people used them like edge uh tom petty you know, very few, you know, but they weren't a thing. And so nobody knew how to repair them, you know. And I found him through a guitar shop on Sunset Boulevard who, who I could find little Vox parts at this place. And I kept asking him for more parts and more parts. And finally, the guy said, look, I'll just give you my guy's number, you know. Yeah. 
and it was Mark in Iowa, wow. you know? So I called him, we got chatting and whatever. And, you know, I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, so I can understand the Midwest thing. And I really liked him because he was so unlike almost any other guitar dealer or vintage dealer who thinks that they know everything and you know nothing. Right. You know? So eventually, you know, I said, well, I, I was real superstitious about sending my amps anywhere. I said, what if I bought you a plane ticket and, and you came out here and worked on my amps? And he was like, okay. So he came out and stayed at my house and, and he brought with him a, like a suitcase full of stuff to trade and deal, you know, jazz bass neck and this and that, whatever. And, and, uh, our, our mutual friend Raul, you know, yeah. said that I, you know, I imprisoned him in my apartment to, be, you know, <laughs> repair my stuff. And, you know, at the time he had four kids, you know, and the idea of moving from Iowa to LA was pretty daunting. Yeah. But it became apparent that he could do really well, not just, not just with the amps, but he could repair any vintage, you know, mic preamps or compressors or whatever for engineers and you know he became friends with jack joseph quaig and would repair stuff for him and the algae brothers as well and you know uh, various uh alby galutin all people that wanted to use you know bands like jellyfish mm -hmm. anybody into old gear yeah i mean last time i was at his house he had les paul's original recording rack oh. when he was doing his original overdub stuff wow you know yeah, you know, yeah. So like a anyway, so he, he could repair anything. And so I, you know, kind of helped convince him to move to California. And he did. And then I kept asking him over and over, couldn't you build me an amp that sounds like the AC30, but it's not old already? Yeah. You know. And so finally he met up with a guy named Rick Parada. And you know, Mark was like the, the the genius designer guy, but he wasn't an organizer guy. Rick Parada was the organizer guy. So when they met, then it became, started to become a thing, you know. And, uh, and Mark says, well, what do you want on the amp? And I said, well, you, you got to have the top boost channel. I don't care about anything else. I said, I, a phase reverse switch on the back. Because whenever I would take my amps to the studio and try to mic them stereo, the engineer would always go, I think your amp's out of phase. And I'd have to go in and switch the wires. So if you could just flip the switch. Yeah. You know, and I said, put a half power switch so it could be like an AC-15, drop two of the power tubes, and put, put two outlets, like Fenders used to have an outlet on the back. I said, put yeah. two of those, because you always got to plug in other shit. Yeah. You know? And he said, what about master volume? I said, no, I hate master volume. He says, I have to put a master volume on it. Okay, if you have to, then put it in like a switch where you can take it completely out of the circuit. So he put like a push-pull. So, and he said, what about the second channel? Would you like a, like a Princeton channel? I said, no, I don't want that. I'm not a Fender, no, no, no. And he says, how about a, like a AC-15, you know, channel? I said, I don't care, whatever you think, right? <laughs> so. Because I really didn't care. I was like, I, Top Boost Channel was, was it for me. So he, you know, he built the amp. It was great. They sent it to Guitar Blair Magazine for some shootout, and it won. And boom, they were off, like, to the races, you know. And, 
you know, Mike Landau was in there getting ahead and, you know, he took a head that I wanted and blah, blah, blah. Like, it was like, a, it became a thing, you know? And uh, so, so Rick Parada, uh, he, he was a big part of that early involvement, you know, with him. And I, I have, I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit that the second channel I never plugged into for probably a couple of years or so. And, and then one day I was doing a session for Roger McGuinn and I had the first single 12 matchless SC30. And I thought, let me just try plugging into the second channel just to see. And I went, holy shit. <laughs> I've been all these years. <laughs> this channel is amazing. <laughs> you know, and that's the EF86. And so then when it came time to do a signature model amp, which basically the first matchless already was, it was everything I wanted. But by then I wanted a single 12 and I wanted that EF86 channel only and reverb and tremolo built in. So that was about 1997 that was introduced. And then at the, either the end of that year or early next year is when all that bullshit went down. Wow. And, but my point in bringing up Rick Barada was that he then did sort of the same with RCA ribbon microphones. You know, oh, they okay. didn't exist. You couldn't buy them anymore. That AEA company hadn't come out yet. And so he started Royer mics. Oh, right. And the same thing. They were like a modernized, you know, killer version of this old concept. And, you know, they, they went crazy and did really well. So he was a, a key part of Matchless that people don't, maybe they don't realize. Because wow. every genius needs, like, some, you know, somebody that organizes things on the <laughs> other side. Right? right. Wow, man. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, there's so many Matchless fans around the world and so many amps that have come from Matchless. It's almost like kind of like the Dumble thing, you know, everyone's stolen and tried to improve or make their own version of that. And there's such great... Yeah. Yeah, it did. It spawned, I, I think, it, it, in a way, it kind of, I mean, obviously, Dumble was there before that, but that was such a elite thing. Like, the average person could never get one of those, right? Yeah. yeah. But Matches kind of started the whole boutique amp thing. And, and again, timing. Yeah, you know? and, and organization, like you say. I mean, the one thing Dumble never had. He didn't have a reparation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, a couple of people tried, but he couldn't work with them. You uh, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So wow. was it what's what's the difference for you, John, with the AC30 and the AC15? The EF86. Right. The AC15 is the like the second channel of the matchless. Mm. It's an EF86, and there's no tone controls really. There's a there's like a two position bass roll off kind of switch, and then you have like on all boxes you have the control that's called cut, which is kind of like a master presence control. Right. But the cool thing about that channel is it just sounds beautiful on the natch. You know, you, you don't have to do anything to it. It's just like and it doesn't matter what guitar you plug into it, a Gretsch or one seventy five SG whatever. Telly, whatever, they all sound good. Yeah, yeah. So that's the, the earliest AC30s also had that in there. And oh. they're, they're 
it would be called an AC 34. Mm -hmm. So meaning four inputs. And if, so very early ones had a black panel, four inputs and still the, the EF 86 tube in the first gain stage. Right. You've got a so few of that's, them. Pardon? You, you have a few of them. I, I have one of those. I have one AC 30 like that. Uh, and it was, they were, it would have been originally fawn colored but it was spray painted so it's pretty, pretty nasty looking but uh and it survived the flood in 2010 right which is not and then i have a, an ac 15 uh early 60 like 63 ac 15 that's you know that um more modern anything after the 60s the ac 15 is a completely different beast wow they did they didn't use they went away from that tube. Everybody in guitar world went away from that tube because it it was uh, it could tend to be microphonic, mm. and they weren't as reliable as the twelve AX seven type of preamp. Um, Mark Sampson found a way. He said kind of by accident, but kind of by design. He set that tube in the very corner of the layout of the chassis. So it was sort of in a dead area of the cabinet, you know, and it didn't vibrate very much mm -hmm. and it kind of didn't get a lot of sound reflection because of where it was. And he put these little weird little silicone rings around it that almost look like a little rings around a planet or something, you know, and those kind of also deadened that. So the location and those and all that kind of stuff, you know, like I, I played some of these amps with that tube in them for years and years, and I never had a problem, you know, but they they can tend to be a little troublesome. And that's why everybody moved away from them. But everything I like <coughs> is not made anymore. You know, even even the pedals even that I music. like. You all, there is <laughs> Yeah. I mean, somebody look at my pedal board and it's like, the boss dimension c which is not made anymore the i like the tube screamer sound tank which nobody else likes the ts5 not made anymore the d2 the rv2 are all like old things <laughs> like me <laughs> so, so john what made you kind of go the django route what was that a long time passion for you that you were like and I was like, all right, I'm enough with the, the electric as much. I'm going to get into the acoustics world more. What? what yeah, well, I was um, I was playing in a new wave band in like 1979, 1980 time around the whiskey and the clubs in Hollywood, Starwood and stuff like that. And my setup then was a Les Paul Jr. and a AC30. Wow. And it was a killer tone, loved the tone, and, and a Rickenbacker 12 string. And uh, at that time, uh, I had got offered a job at Disneyland to play bluegrass music in the bluegrass in Dixieland. And my friend, Dick Hardwick, who's our mutual friend, yeah, he'd been, he had been asked by management to put together this band that could Basically, they just wanted something to cover, entertain two different areas of Disneyland. 
And there was a new ride called Thunder Mountain Railroad, which they, you know, would have, when, when, when a new ride opened, the lines would be super long. So they would have a band or a comedian or something to entertain the people in line. Oh, wow. You know? Yeah. So they needed a, they needed a bluegrass band, you know, themed for this mountain thing. And they needed a band on Main Street, which was more of a 1920s looking area. So Dick, Dick said to me, hey, do you know anybody that could play bluegrass fiddle and Dixieland cornet? I'm like, what? <laughs> no, I don't think that person exists. <laughs> I said, but, and, and I was sort of lying. I said, but I can play the mandolin and the clarinet. It wasn't total lie because I did play clarinet, but only classical. I didn't know any Dixieland and I didn't even like it. <laughs> and, and I didn't own a mandolin, but I really wanted to learn how to play it. <laughs> so he said, okay, you have the gig. Oh, like, holy shit. So I ran out and bought a mandolin, started furiously practicing. And originally it was going to be a three-month job, right? So uh, I, I wasn't that worried about it. You know, I can make it through three months, whatever. And, and so... You know, we learned like three bluegrass songs and three Dixieland songs and then would play them and move from another place, play it again, play it again. So we got bored and would learn more songs right. and we got better and we were all. And Dick was playing drums and comedian, comedy and singing and what would Dick do? I mean, well, in the bluegrass, he was playing guitar. Oh, he was playing guitar. Yeah, oh, okay. he, he could play it because uh, Doug Maddox was the banjo player, very unusual banjo player in that. He played tenor banjo extremely well in the right tuning, plectrum banjo extremely well in the right tuning, and five-string banjo, even though he only knew three songs, it sounded like he was good on those songs. Uh -huh. And Dick could play the guitar to accompany him on those things. Uh -huh. So you already had those two. Because I'd never played with Dick when he was playing with the guitar. You know? Yeah, he's... Okay. It, He's yeah. not like amazing or anything, but he was fine. It was yeah, like, he's got great rhythm. Good times. And he played, yeah, he played well. And uh, and then we had a bass player that would play an upright bass for bluegrass and could play, and was actually a tuba player. So that's not that unusual of a double, but, and then you had me, you know, mandolin and clarinet. So uh, by the end of the those three months, you know, we kind of had gotten decent. And especially the leader, Dick, was a very good entertainer. So people would be entertained even if the music was dodgy, you know? So <laughs> at, at, at the same, at the same time, uh, my new wave band, it, it just, I could tell it wasn't going to go anywhere. It was a really good band, but our managers were heroin addicts and our <laughs> singer was alcoholic. And, you know, it's like, and we were playing in these clubs where we'd get, I don't know, by the time we paid for gas and the, help our roadies help and whatever we, there'd be nothing left you know and and it could either be in these smoky clubs where nobody really gave a shit about music or i could be like outdoors in the clean air playing acoustic music where people still didn't give a shit about music <laughs> but you got paid so, <laughs> so i i kind of i kind of i left i quit my new wave band and just kind of i, I kind of went all in for acoustic Right. And so this banjo player that I mentioned, Doug Maddox, he was playing these pieces that were like incredibly flashy. 
There's a, a banjo player named Harry Reeser, very showy. And these guys were from the vaudeville era. So they had to entertain with, you know, flashy shit. And Eddie Peabody was the plectrum style player that was very flashy. And so I was, I was watching this guy in my band play these, you know, incredibly flashy things. And meanwhile, I'm still a guitar player at heart, but every day I'm playing the mandolin and the clarinet. My guitar is like, what, you know? <laughs> so I, I kept asking, you know, and meanwhile, like I said, I didn't like Dixieland or that kind of stuff, but it's just because I'd only heard Aki's pizza parlor version. You know, yeah. I didn't know that it was actually, Oh, Louis Armstrong, and right. that, or, you know, the new Orleans stuff. And so I was being schooled at this time in both traditional jazz and Dixieland and in bluegrass, you know, cause I kind of started from the David Grisman quintet and then went backwards and went, Oh, then, then you have new grass revival. Oh, then you have the, the seldom scene. Oh, then you have the Osborne brothers. Then you have the Stanley brothers and flat and scrubs and Bill Monroe. I kind of worked backwards to Bill Monroe and I loved it all. <clears throat> you know, and Bill Monroe became my, you know, mandolin hero and Jesse McReynolds also. So it was cool because I was learning so much stuff and performing every day, getting to try my skills of what I learned, but still I wasn't playing the guitar, you know? And so I got and started listening to some of the twenties, thirties guitarists like Eddie Lang and Dick McDonough, Carl Kress stuff. And oh, they were fantastic, but it, it wasn't like that supercharged wow factor like the banjo stuff, you know? So I kept asking, like I asked Doug Maddox about this and I asked Howard Alden, the same thing. And John Reynolds, like I asked all these guys that were playing around and said, well, who was kick ass on the guitar, you know, back then, back in the day. And everybody would say the name Django Reinhardt with this reverence. Oh, you're going to Django, you know? And in art, you know, interviews with Jeff Beck, in Guitar Player Magazine, he would mention Django. Interviews with Clarence White, you know, in Bluegrass Guitar, he would mention Django. It's like, oh, Django was coming from all these directions. So I, I went and bought an album. And the first one I bought was like outtakes and weird, it was like uh, oddities, rarities. So Django playing with an accordion player and a tin whistle on a six-string banjo. You know, it wasn't the shit, you know? So a little bit put off. And then I saw another album. It was a double album. And it showed the quintet of the Hot Club of France in their white inner jackets, three McAfee guitars and the violin and the bass. And that just looked ultimately cool. So I bought that. And then that was the shit. You know, Limehouse Blues, Eyes of Muggin, After You've Gone, Minor Swing, Blue Drag, you know, just the, the Honeysuckle Rose, the classic stuff. And I just, I lost my mind. It was like, that's what I was looking for. That was flashy, emotional, powerful. It wasn't nice, you know? Mm-hmm. Most acoustic guitar stuff is nice. <laughs> this like badass. This was like Hendrix on an, on an acoustic guitar. And so immediately I, I tried to start learning it. And the only thing I had to play on at that time was an Epiphone Zenith Archtop which is not a bad archtop, it was okay. But 
you know, kind of the opposite thing of wanting to it's sound a, like it's Django. A sweet, it's a sweet sounding guitar. Yeah, and sort of yeah. plunky, you know, yeah. like nod, no sustain, no like. And uh, so then the, you know, then it was the search to find a, I didn't even know what those were called, you know, Selmer, McFerry, you know, it was, it was like being an archaeologist, you know, to try to learn and what are those guitars, where did we find them? culture, and, yeah. Yeah. It's prehistoric culture. <laughs> so at the time, uh, Bruce and I have some mutual friends. I mentioned John Reynolds before. He's a great, he looks like David Niven. Uh, can kind of scat like Bing Crosby and uh, plays guitar like a combination of Eddie Lang and Eddie Peabody and yeah. Django or something. Yeah. Just like kind of wild, you know, but great. So he had a band called Mood Indigo, a trio. Himself, uh, interesting because the, the bass player was a guy named David Jackson, who was the smallest guy playing the biggest instrument bass with the deepest voice. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's and, a guy. Have we had him on the show? I mean, he's an old friend. He was in Chow Bob for a long time. And no, I think friend, we, yeah. we got to get him on the show. He's like, he's got some, he'll have some killer stories. Uh, he's one of the funniest and also one of the funniest people on the planet. Well, and he was part of Dillard and Clark expedition with Gene Clark and Doug Dillard, who looks like you, by the way. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> He, he, was, he also played with Hoyt Axton and uh, yeah, Dwight, Dwight Yoakam for a short time. Right. Yeah. David John actually wrote Joy to the World. Did you know that? He did. David, they were doing a Hoyt Axton um, album. album and they needed one more song. And you know how Jackson is. It's like a pixie. I mean, right. and, and like he goes, how about Jeremiah was a bullfrog? He just like did it. You know, he kind of had it in his head and they recorded it. You know, and of course, Three Dog Night later picked it up. Yeah. Well, David just, you know, threw a song and didn't, you know, think about, and Hoyt, I guess, basically put his own name on it. Oh, yeah. And sure David <laughs> later sued. Did he? For the, for the royalties. But it's a precedent now because he waited so long to make the claim oh. that even though there was no contest that he was actually the writer of the song, he had waited too long to make his claim. And the judge decided that it would be too much trouble for all the parties involved to separate all the money at this late date. You know I mean? He like, it was like a statute of limitations. Oh my God. It is, it is actually a precedent now in music copyright because of David Jackson. Wow. You know I mean? I did but that's totally, if you know David. It's, it's, it's perfect totally, for him. Yes. I know. It's, 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 <laughs> I know. I mean, he didn't want to, he didn't want to tour with John Denver back in the day when John Denver was huge and I'm sure paying huge money because he didn't want to have to play the same thing every night. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Whatever, dude. And if you know him, which, which you do, yeah. getting him to do the same thing every night is impossible. Yeah. He, he resists that. I mean, we call him the phantom because there's something about David. Whereas if you've got to be somewhere at eight o'clock, David will be there at five to eight, but you won't be able yeah, to find him at eight until about eight, 10 then he shows it's like he, he has a way of becoming <laughs> invisible and all his friends like the most we had a, on our band we had a fine if you said where's jackson you had to pay five dollars oh. and then we would keep a fund you know and of course we'd have a big dinner at the end of the tour yep and that fund would be like five hundred dollars <laughs> <laughs> how many times so people many said times. where's jackson oh my god <laughs> 
Well, this that that explains why he didn't stay in Mood Indigo very long. But anyway, <laughs> this band was uh, was him with the big deep voice and the big instrument and the shortest, and and John Reynolds with the kind of turtle voice, medium height on the guitar, and then the tallest guy had the big Cab Calloway voice, uh, Alan McGill, who's also Kate, also known as Casey McGill, and he would play rhythm on a ukulele, but but like kick-ass full rhythm on a ukulele. So, and then these three guys would scat sing in harmony, you know, as they were an amazing band. And sometimes, uh, so that was also at the time that I was getting into all that kind of music. And, and that led me looking for more like songs. Like, uh, so I found the, discovered the Boswell sisters and the spirits of rhythm and, uh, and uh, the cats and the fiddles all these cool songs and bands, you know? And sometimes this Mood Indigo trio would augment their band with a full horn section, including people like David Hungate and um, Dean Parks playing, they would play trombone and alto sax and Matt Benton would play drums and Lee Thornburg uh, from Tower of Power and many right. other things would be on trumpet. It was like an incredible lineup of people. And they also liked having one or more extra rhythm guitars because they wanted it to sound a little bit like the quintet of the Hot Club of France with multiple rhythms. Mm. So they asked me to come, you know, and, and be an extra guitarist. I was like, great. They're one of my favorite bands. So yes, please. And, and during that rehearsal, I had borrowed a, a 12 fret Selmer McAfee from another banjo player friend of mine. It's the only one I'd ever seen at that point from Brad Roth. Mm -hmm. And I was playing this 12 fret, you know, original one with the sound chamber and scoop and everything. I, I liked it. It was cool. I didn't fall in love with it for whatever reason. Uh, and I went to the rehearsal and John Reynolds saw me playing this. He goes, oh, I saw one like that at Westwood Music which was in Westwood, not far away. Um, he said, but I didn't think it was a real one because it didn't have the crying mouth, the big D hole. He said, it just had this little oval hole. I went, what? <laughs> Do you think it's still there? I said, it can't be still there. He says, about a year and a half ago. Yeah, it might be still there because they don't have it out. You have to ask for it to see it. I'm like, oh, you know. So I called them. And they said, oh, yeah, we have that still. I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to the bank at my lunch hour. <laughs> I'm going to get a loan. And I said, and this is a Friday afternoon. And uh, I said, don't wait for us because we only got off at 445 and they were open until 6. And this was L.A. San Diego freeway traffic, you know. Oh, so <laughs> you so were coming from Disneyland. Disney, yeah, from Anaheim. So we cut our set short or less <laughs> and Raul and me jump in the car and we blast up to Westwood and they bring out this case, like a, a really heavy duty guild hard shell case, open it up and Raul's eyes get giant. And I'm seeing only the second, you know, Selmer that I've ever seen. And it doesn't look like any other one that I've seen, but I don't know, you know? And so pick it up, play it. The frets were so bad, it looked like someone had taken a file this way. So if you bent a string, it's like, 
you know, would sit into a divot, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's terrible. And I could see some cracks on the face, you know, and, but I thought, I don't know where, you know, and, and Raul's reaction, noticeable, yeah. you know, but he was trying to, you know, he was yeah. trying to play it down. And the owner of the store was kind of famous guy named Fred Wallachie because he's the guy that sold stuff to Stephen Stills and Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and all those people would buy their Martins and stuff from him. So he was a known entity, but he wasn't there. So his sales guys, I, I decided to buy it. It was $2,000, which was like a fortune to me. Um, but I thought maybe I'll never see another one. You know, they're just that rare. And so he said, you know, the, the owner's not here, but there's some sort of story about this guitar. So he'll be back on Tuesday if you want to call him. Like, okay. So I buy it. We go out of the store. I say to Raul, okay, what the hell was that? You know, why did you like see a ghost? And he said, and, and this guy, Raul, notices everything about everything, right? So he says, well, when they opened the case, I looked at the pickware. And the shape of the pickler on the guitar looks like every picture of every guitar that I've ever seen in Django sales. And I went, okay, well, you know, everybody wants to say every strap was Hendrix's and whatever. So, so I didn't buy into it too much, but I thought it was cool. I was like, okay, probably whoever plays that style plays has like the Django. same pickler. Yeah. But in actuality, pickler, the, the type that he's talking about doesn't come from your pick. It comes from your little finger. Yeah. As you play, it scratches away at the, you know, at the top. And, and actually, no one's pickware is the same, actually. Anyway, you, so I, I did call Fred Wallachy a few days later. And I said, hey, you know, I bought this guitar. They said there's a story about it. And he says, oh, yeah. A number of years ago, I got a call from a guy with a thick French accent. He said his name was Moustache. And then he had a guitar that he got from Django in a, in a gambling debt or something. And he wanted $1,500 for a camera. And would I buy the guitar? And, and he said, I, I thought that that was a joke. It was one of my friends playing a trick on me or something. And so he said, sure, yeah, bring it down. So sure enough, this guy comes with a big black mustache, French guy. And he's got this guitar. And he tells him that he's got, you know, and it's not, not in a case or anything. It's just the guitar. And he, he says he's got extra tuners back at home and whatever. And he'll send them. Well, he never does that. But... The guy says, whatever the story is, it was worth $1,500. He yeah. gave him that for the camera. Yeah. And, and then he had it in his shop, you know, from, from then on. Well, years later, I find out that, yeah, there was this guy named Moustache who was a jazz drummer and like a character around the Paris jazz scene, like a B actor in, in a bunch of movies. And he was friends with Django. So who knows? I mean, you know, he, he's that guy, that type of guy is going to make up stories. Anyway. Yeah. Right. But it's cool that it came from him. Anyway. Right. So um, this is a fucking long answer to your question. Oh, but that's a really cool story. Man. You know, because part of it is that one too, Django gave him a cellar that had been sold at auction. Who, where's that one? I, somebody's got it. Maybe, I think Tony Marcus may have. Oh, you know Tony? Yeah. Yeah. I think Tony Marcus has. Ooh, I want it. But um, <laughs> uh, I don't think, I think it might not have been one that 
Django played very much. It was just one that he got to Barney, you know, well, because he, Barney, the, the summer company him. would give him guitars. Right. So. And Barney had helped Django out to get an electric, you know, when he was going electric in, you know, when he came to the States. With the play that, with Duke Ellington. Right. Well, I mean, and maybe even that one at L7, but just in some subsequent times, they were buddies. Yeah. So, well, that's so my my obsession and interest in Django goes back to then. And uh, I mean, I loved it so much. I thought that, you know, when I really got into bluegrass, I thought maybe that would be a great career until I went to a bluegrass festival <laughs> and I saw the top. It was like the Stanley brothers, the Osborne brothers. Uh, they were some of the very top acts at the time. And people were sitting in lawn chairs on dirt. There was no dressing room. They were singing through a sure vocal master. It was like the worst. It was like, holy crap, if, if that's the top, mm, this isn't for me. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then I thought, oh, with, could, I could play this Django style music. Oh, he's showing me a picture of Django and Barney. Yeah, and that's your guitar. guitar. Before you painted that up, ah. and it had the old 22 fret fingerboard. That's so that. cool. Yeah. We're geeking here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when, I, when I tried to perform any of this kind of music, I realized there was no place to play. There was no venues. Jazz festivals didn't want it. Maybe a trad jazz festival might put you on for like a little 15 minute set or something, but no one even knew anything about it. There was a few people across America. Maybe I heard of a guy in San Francisco, uh, a blind guy that had a Selmer McAfee, Bob Wilson, I think. Uh -huh. And there was maybe one guy in the East Coast or something, but there was nothing, you know? And I realized well, I love this, but I have, there, there's no way to make it a career. You know, it's impossible. So I just let it be my hobby music, really. You know, I still loved it. And I went to Samoa and went to, the, you know, I met Maurice DuPont and ordered a guitar from him. And, you know, I was still in it. But to make a living, I was doing other music, you know, I. I'd started, uh, well, every day at Disneyland, I was playing bluegrass and then to play guitar there. Then I started this other incarnation of the band, which the instrumental, we had three original Selmers by this time. And Raul and I played in traditional tuning and Doug Maddox played in Carl Crest tuning because he was a banjo player. And then the three of us, played those, a bass player, and then we did vocals that were like the Boswell Sisters. Wow, that's cool. So it was a cool band, you know? And then in the afternoon, I would play either clarinet or soprano sax and kind of Dixieland. And then in the night, I would go up to LA and play rockabilly bass or country guitar or rock guitar in bands up there because I knew I didn't want to stay at Disneyland for my career. You know, I wanted to be, you know, getting something else and eventually, um, hooked up with Chris Hillman, started the Desert Rose Band, we got a record deal fairly quickly, and, and then the producers from that band started using me for other session work in Nashville, so I became a session player just by accident, you know, and the band did really well. We had number one records and toured, and 
all that kind of stuff. So that put me from like a local musician to a national and international musician. And uh, then during the Desert Rose Band, we did our, our second album. So Elton John, Chris Hillman's wife, Connie, worked for Elton's touring company and also worked for Rocket Records, you know, which had Queen and whatever. She worked for John Reed, Elton's manager. So they were close. And, and she sent Elton a copy of Desert Rose Band's first album, which he loved. And he gave us quotes to use and supported us and stuff. Wow. He, he came to see us at the Roxy on Sunset uh, for a premiere of our second album. And in the audience was, uh, well, Lyle Lovett was the opening act. And in the audience was Bruce Hornsby, Dave Edmonds, Stephen Stills, Rose Maddox, uh, Bernie Toppin, Nicolette Larson, and Elton John, among and my parents, <laughs> among <laughs> others. And uh, Elton came backstage after we finished. The, the last song of the set was this one where I would do a really showy thing on the guitar that actually became Orange Blossom Special on the Helicasters album, because right. I never got with Desert Rose Band, except a really short version. So, so it was kind of, it was a show-off thing, you know? And he came backstage after that in the dressing room and grabbed my hand. Brilliant guitar, fucking brilliant. When I entered his mind, and then six years later, he called me and asked me to tour with him. So, you know, everything has a... A connection point you know sure. nothing comes out of nowhere and uh but so then you know so i did all these other things the desert rose band sessions uh, I, I was producing working on tv shows and film i was appeared in phoenix uh, river phoenix's last film and worked on very you know award shows and all these different things and then toured with elton and then uh i think two things happened to make gypsy jazz possible and viable. Um, one was the internet, mm -hmm. you know, these chat rooms and groups could, could kind of get together and realize that there's all these different people that like these niche things, you know? And then the other thing was a couple of guitar companies started building guitars that were this style of guitar that were affordable to people. One was Saga, Jeton, and the other was Delarte. Because before that, if you didn't have an original Selma or maybe a Favino or something, you're out of luck, you know? It's just, so now there's available instruments, there's ways for people to gather, you know? And then uh, there was this guy named Nick Lair, who was a good friend of Robin Nolan. And he was kind of into the theater world in a way. And he wanted to replicate the Django Festival in France in America. And by this time, Pearl Django existed as well. And they were a Seattle-based band. And they had isn't enough Nick, of... Isn't Nick based up here too? I mean, isn't well, he Seattle? He's Did not you know a, what the Django Fest was, was in Seattle? It, no? Well, Whidbey uh, Island. Whidbey Island, right. This area. Yeah. And Nick, Nick passed away a few years ago. Um, but he was friends with Robin Nolan. And Pearl Django had enough of a following up here so that they could have a little festival on Woodby Island. And, and Woodby Island somehow had a similar vibe to Samoa in France, where it was sort of a, 
off the beaten path, a good vibe, people could jam everywhere. The community was welcoming as opposed to fucking don't play that horrible guitar music here, you know? <laughs> um, and so they started a festival and that helped, you know, that helped to, to build the whole scene too. And then other places around the country tried to copy that festival and, and they tried Nick to actually did it down in like Mill Valley, didn't he? he did a they, there, yeah, there was one in Mill Valley, there was one in Laguna Beach, there was one in Austin, uh, that he was involved right. with. None of none of those lasted because of yeah. the, the community, like exactly. the community of Whidbey Island really supported this festival. And they had like one of those uh, arts council things. Whidbey Island Council of the Arts or something like that. They supported it. Mm-hmm. The other communities, Laguna, Mill Valley, they didn't support they it. They just rented rooms to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it never caught hold like it did in Whidbey. And they and they did it. They've done it 20 years now. Unfortunately, Nick passed away and he passed along the he passed the baton to Simon Planting who's a, a bass player in my quintet, a Dutch. If there's a star gypsy jazz bass player, it's, it's him. Yeah. You know, he played with Foppy Lafortine and, and everybody, the Rosenbergs and, and Robert Nolan and so on. And anyway, so he's a really good guy to carry it along because he understands the bringing in international artists and all that kind of stuff. But of course the 20th anniversary was sidetracked by COVID and, uh, we did have the 20th, even though it was 21st, last September, oh. and I was able to return for that. Um, but and also, wasn't uh, that the movies uh, Sweet and Lowdown also? Oh, helped. Sweet and Lowdown helped definitely introduce it to people. And then, um, for me personally, uh, I had done an album called After You've Gone back in the eighties, just before Desert Roseman was starting to take off because I'd been playing at Disneyland, all this music and stuff. And I thought likely I might never get to play this music again. And I'd like to like have a document, document of it. Yeah. yeah. So I did an album where I played gypsy jazz guitar on one side and Daryl Anger, I brought in to play violin and David Grisman came in to play mandolin. And then Raul and Brad Roth were on rhythm guitars and Charlie Warren was on bass. Uh, and then on the other side of the album, uh, I played clarinet and Ray Templin played drums and piano and Charlie Warren played bass again. And I played also a Charlie Christian guitar. So it was kind of more like Benny Goodman-ish and the other side was like Django-ish. And, uh, but over the years, that was in 19... 19- I don't know, 86 or 87 or something. And this was before I got to go over to San Juan, go to the festival and see people play. And, you know, I learned so much more about the style. I kind of wanted to do another album just to use what I had learned, you know, and I started an album with some waltzes and things like that. And, and then in 2002, I think I, I got a call from a guy who said, Hey, uh, there's a, a music supervising for this film and they want, they're looking for somebody to replicate a couple of Django's recordings because they want to use them, but they don't want them to sound old because the dialogue's going to be new and, you know, and I said, well, I, I would love to do that. You know, he, 
I guess Guitar Player Magazine had had sent him to me, and so that I, I could I could probably do that. And for me, it'd be, nothing would be more fun than to dig into there and try to replicate every little thing about the recording. So um, he had uh, the director call me, and the director says, "I've heard some of your music, and you know." Django Reinhardt made a particular racket on the guitar, and, and you're the only person that I've heard that makes that same sort of racket. <laughs> like, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I would, you know, I'd, I'd love to do this. This would be really great. And he says, uh, well, there's also a bit of Django Reinhardt on camera. And I said, well, I don't look anything like him. You know, I'm Norwegian heritage and I don't have dark hair or anything like that. I said, but I'll, I'll dye my hair, I'll grow the mustache, I'll do whatever, you know, if I can play the part. And he said, well, we'd have to get prosthetics to make you a special device for your hand. I said, cool. <laughs> and he says, oh, I was just kidding. How could you play? And I said, well, I've already learned how to play those solos with two fingers. <laughs> which I hadn't told him before because I didn't want to scare him off that I was like too much of a Django nerd, you know, that I'd be like, so, so he let me do that. And, and I thought if I don't use this opportunity to finish that album, you know, and, and use the publicity from this film, which ended up starring Charlize Theron and Penelope Cruz and Stuart Townsend. And in the scene where I'm playing blue drag, Penelope, Cruz and uh, Charlize Theron are dancing together. So, and and in the makeup make, makeup that morning, I was sitting in between them. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of awesome. The whole thing was awesome. Dreams do come true. <laughs> and because of different uh, regulatory things, I couldn't bring anyone from America to play with me, but I could bring somebody from England, which I brought my friend Andy McKenzie mm -hmm. to be one of the rhythm guitar players. And then the other musicians had to be Canadian or French. And uh, so I did the recordings and they went well. And, and then we were doing the filming and which it was super fun because the scene was huge. It was a, in a nightclub, supposed to be Paris in the thirties. And they'd even created little table stands that said tonight only Quintet of the Hawk of France. And, you know, so there was a lot of extras, was all the waiters, dancers, and the stars, all three of the stars were in it too. So it was a big scene and it was filmed in a place in Montreal that looked like old Paris. And the, the cool thing about it was that night, Borelli the Grand was playing in Montreal. Oh, wow. So I'd already met Borelli a number of years before and, and had a really good experience with him. So we kept looking at our watches like, this is the most awesome thing I've ever done, but when's it going to end? I want to go see Brothers. <laughs> so, so we, we, we finished and just kind of threw our stuff in the hotel and didn't even, there wasn't even time to like take makeup off or anything like that. So <laughs> I got to the, and they had put makeup on this hand to make it look scarred and stuff. And it drew it up to the point where if I tried to straighten these fingers and play normally, it hurt. So it was just normal to play two fingers. And so we got to the, the gig and I, I sent a note backstage to Borelli because just before they were going on, there wasn't time to say hello to him. I said, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna come back and say hello to you after the gig, but don't be afraid. You know, I'm not gonna look like myself. 
you know. So I went into the dressing room after his gig, and he he played, you know, with Morel. He played incredible. And and when I walked in, you know, oh my god! And 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 I I I showed him my hand, and he was like, you know, how, like when a dog wants to get a snake, but they're afraid of it. You know, he he wanted to touch it, but he was afraid. Of it. <laughs> yeah, it was so cool. Wow. But, so the, doing that and and finishing that album is called Franco American Swing. And because of the extra juice from the movie, you know, I got on the cover of Vintage Guitar and of just as guitar and, and a couple other guitar magazines at the time. And it really helped promote that album a lot. And, and that kind of allowed me then to tour to promote that album. And I had to put together a group and, and start doing it. And I realized, wow, the thing that I wanted to do you know, 20 years before that, now I can kind of do, you know, and then I couldn't believe like in the next four or five years, like 2006, seven, eight, nine, ten. 10, you know, I, I, I played a lot all over the, you know, all over. And, and since then still too, but there was kind of a, we were talking earlier this morning, there was kind of a wave of gypsy jazz and it, and it, you know, it got, it was kind of a thing for a while. And there wasn't that many groups that were high quality playing this kind of music that could entertain. No, you really, you so yeah, you're not only great, but you caught that wave yep. of that popularity, which you mentioned the reasons for it. And, you know, and of course, just the great quality of it. And then I, I sort of started creating my own competition because my yeah, you're, you're different guys. guys would go out, you know, Gonzalo Picado is, you know, great. And he created his own thing. And, and Jason Anik, who I started, you know, when he was in school, he started touring with me and he's got his own thing. And, and uh, so, and then, you know, Gypsy Jazz bands sprouted up all over the country and, and you know, some of them were actually good, you know, so, um, but so long, fucking long answer to question, but <laughs> yeah, I I didn't switch to it. It was just it was, it was always there. It was always there. Know? So how is it jumping from I mean that world to Elton John? I mean, it's like complete opposites, but the best of both worlds, basically. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, well, I, I don't differentiate in my heart between any of the styles of music you know I, I i love them all and literally just as happy you know playing a mandolin lines on daniel or a, a saxophone on little genie or guitar on levon or whatever as i am playing nuage you know it, it's uh i, I just want to do it as best as i can to to suit the song and to suit the musician and and uh I, it I guess technically, technically, it's not that hard to change for me because if somebody puts a Telecaster in my hand, I'm going to automatically want to play Telelicks, you know, because it sounds good. <laughs> I'm not going to want to use a fat pick and play Gypsy Jazz licks because it's going to overdrive the strings and sound clunky and horrible. And, and you know, vice versa, I'm not going to try to play bendy Telelicks on a Gypsy Jazz guitar. It's going to... Yeah. My fingers bleed. Yeah. So, in a way, it's like if you, you know, like if you put on a, 
a dinner outfit or a suit or something, you're going to go to an elegant dinner, you know, you're going to feel differently than if you just go in your normal clothes and go get a burrito or something, you know, it's kind of like the instrument and clothes too. You know, it, it, it puts me in a mindset of boom, um, this is, this is where I am now. And this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'll look down at my mandolin, for example, and it, I'll, I'll just be in a more channeling of a building yeah, row that, frame of mind. Yeah. With that being said, uh, you know, and you're playing obviously mandolin and your your jiton guitar on this tour. Yeah, but it, you're still, even though that's true, what you just said, you're still unmistakably you. And every, oh. I just want to say, oh, thank you. That that is, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe your head goes to that world, but as a person, you know, fairly knowledgeable listener. <laughs> um, you know, I hear, sure, I hear the influence, but I really hear you. I don't hear them. Oh, well, well thank you. Yeah, I, and strangely, no matter how much I try to sound like someone else, it never happens, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. which, which is, it, it's fine. And it's funny, I mean, a lot of people ask me, oh, what did you do during the pandemic? You know, not a lot of people that weren't creative for a living got to be really creative. And saw that time as like a like a gift of like awesome creativity. For me, it, it wasn't like that because I'm I'm I'd have to say I'm, I'm a lot of my creativity comes from because I want to share it. You know, when there's a, a a place to an opportunity to do it, like either a recording or a performance or something, I have to have a yeah. Okay, I'm going to share this at this time. I just don't do it for myself. Right. You know, it's like, I've done it for myself enough, you know? So, um, but what I did do uh, was archive a lot of, and, and transfer a lot of old tapes and recordings that I had been making since I was 16. You know, I have my 16 year old self playing crossroads with a band and it's, it's amazing, you know? And, and then my earliest multi-track recordings from the early seventies and, where I'm playing every instrument, drums and piano and singing and all this stuff. And I realized that, wow, most of the elements of my style that I would categorize my little things are there from, from then. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, you know, different melodic things. Uh, I, I used harmonics a lot. I've always used them a lot. Right. And, I don't know, just different phrasing things and stylistic things. It's a funny it's thing. Like, you know, we've always been there. When you're young, it's like, I've got to be me. I've got to be me. I've got to be me. And you hit a certain age. I think it's usually around 40 for, or 30, 35 for early developers. And you go, oh, shit, I'm me. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. <laughs> it's like, but it was always there. I mean, I, it's the same thing. I listened to recordings back, you know, when I was 16 and 17. And I hear little things. The elements of your style. That, that, were, that are still there that people think of when they think of my playing. Yeah. And it's like, well, okay, and, tell, of course, tell I didn't even what, notice. What are those? Tell me a lot of left, I think it's a lot of it because I am left-handed. Yeah. The, uh, the legato slurring and of course i'm mostly influenced by uh horn players saxophone mm -hmm. in particular you know so there's a lot of that legato style right and i kind of figured out a way to make 
to make it legato s- phrasing on the guitar, which the guitar really doesn't want to do. No, it's it's, it's antithetical to and, the guitar. And so, like you know, being able to control slurring rhythmically and you know and dynamically, and give the idea that a slur actually is crescendoing. Mm. Yeah, you know, which which of course That's is hard. Our, yeah, it's well, physically it's impossible. Like, it's, but it is you, physically, but there's you a way. The, like you said, give the impression because what it is is I'll catch the last note with legato picking. So it'll be the first notes loud, and then the next two kind of dip a little bit. The last one comes out even louder than the first. Uh-huh. Right. And so you yeah. get, and so it does sound like it's going, ah, but it's really going, ah, yeah. You know? and, right. Right. And of course, the amp helps. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah. I mean, those little things were there when I was 16 and 17. And I, you know, of course. Were you even aware of them? No, the no. Yeah. And I mean, I was, I was just going for a sound. Yeah. And trying to will it out of the instrument. Yeah. And the more I got older and realized what I was doing, the more I could define it. Yeah. But it was all just go for it. You know, I'm hearing the sound. I want it. You know, and <laughs> the hands, like just demanding my hands to it. <laughs> well, you know, when I when I started getting into Django, one of the things that I really love about his playing is that, and probably because of his hand, he moved around the fingerboard so much. So, you know, you look at most guitars and you can see the, the frets and the munge, you know, are yeah. kind of like lower in the neck. Yeah. Especially on the low strings. Yeah. No, his guitar is mungy everywhere, every fret, you yeah. know, all up and down. So you get all this colorful playing, you know, like the wound strings up around the 12th fret. They, they have a, such a sound, yeah. you know, and he figured out how to use all of that and move up around the fingerboard. So... I kind of, you know, I do that too. I move around the fingerboard, but I kind of always attribute it to him. Mm-hmm. But then when I listen to this, you know, 16-year-old self, I'm, I'm playing like a, this same motif up here and then down here and then down here. I was, I was already sort of doing that, but not... I, I didn't think about it. I, yeah. I didn't know that I was doing that. You know, I had a similar realization in that, you know, my first instrument was piano. I played classical piano as a kid. Me too. Before I switched to uh, guitar. And as soon as I got the guitar, the whole idea of the way people were kind of trying to show me stuff, you know, which is in, you know, stay in a position yeah, and work everything, um, inherently didn't make sense to me because I saw the exact fingering scheme like if in the key of F, like you have it down at the first fret on the low for low three strings, but in the middle three strings, you have that exact same thing at the third fret. And then if you moved up to the fifth fret, then you have it at the high. Uh, are you still there, Troy? I'm still here. Okay. Oh, okay. Then Martin's downstairs. So that's what that was about. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but I realized that, you know, like that whole, whatever my fingering scheme was for F here down at the nut, Happened here at the third fret, and then happened partially uh-huh. up. Sort of, yeah. So I saw this diagonal that made it just like a piano keyboard in my mind, uh-huh. and I never even realized it till like, like 20, 30 Boy, years later. Yeah. Now I'm like explaining it to students when I teach them. It's like, uh-huh. and and then you get, of course, if you play a phrase, a motif right. this way, if you do it this way because of the string relationships, it actually sounds more like a saxophone or a piano. In other words, more uniform. You know, the string changes happen at the same oh, spot right. of the line. Right, right. So you get a much more natural motific 
relationship into my well with in that <laughs> same thought um i i i recently did a recording for grant geisman asked me to uh play on his records yeah he, he was doing i guess it would be sort of his rockabilly or you know uh, type of song so it was going to be a telecaster type thing uh -huh. and he had this it was kind of basically a blues you know the bridge and, and he had this riff going cool cool riff thing riff based song and uh he said i want you know uh, i want you to be on this track and you know you'll hear the empty place for solo so but it would be cool if you did some fills to come in earlier in the song instead right. of way down in it i said well i can just harmonize it you know really yeah how would you do that i said well just you know like we did the helicasters we would find the position where all of those things were the same. The string switch would be the same. Right, the right. slide would be the same. And usually some of the parts were awkward, uh, but it would match the phrasing in that it, same way. Right. That's and so part of the guitar. So, you know, if you yeah. do something, you know, like three notes on the A string, and then you go up onto the G string, two frets above, and you'll do two frets, and you do the third note on the B string, String, it doesn't even sound like it to my ear. It doesn't no, even sound like the same sound, No, no. It, it, and, and if you're trying to replicate harmony or whatever, so. But even, I, yeah, so that's kind of, I guess, that's another stylistic thing that happened to me yeah. very early in the game. Yeah. Look, nice. Jones, well, what, yeah. I was just going to ask uh, uh, what's a moment throughout your career where you've you just had this serene musical moment and it's brought back. You know, was it maybe meeting someone that you never thought you'd get to meet or some moment that stands out in your career where you're just like, wow, I can't believe this shit is happening right now. What stands out? Oh, God. Yeah, I've had so, there's been so many. Um, certainly when I got to, when I got to play at the Django Reinhardt Festival, I had, um, I had my quintet and it, I had been, you know, I'd been performing around for a couple of years by that time. So I, I felt pretty good about my chops and stuff. And um, I, I had a, an advocate who was sort of on the council and had something to do with booking the bands there, you know. And, and he said, no, John Jorgensen will not perform unless he is at the crime spot on the Saturday night. You know, it was like he really pushed for me. So I literally got nine o'clock on saturday night samwa which is like you know the best spot ever and i'm the only american gypsy jazz guitarist to ever do that right and uh i was incredibly nervous you know i had Stokola rosenberg and ramon and angela debar and hank marvin all these other people were in the audience who I knew some of them were there, but I'm glad I didn't know all of them. Everyone that was there, I was already nervous. And uh, I don't know if you ever heard of this place called the Cucumbar in London. It was a dedicated bar venue for gypsy jazz. And the, the woman, Sylvia, who Rushworth who ran it, she was like right in the front at this gig and, and she knew me. And, you know, during the first song, I was so nervous and at some point, she was like encouraging me, you know, just go. And it, it pushed me right over the edge within myself. 
And then from there on, the set just went higher and higher and higher and higher. And they're used to no one entertaining at all in jazz, right? So I was entertaining, introducing the songs in French. And I'm sure it was sort of sounded cute to them because, I, you know, not great, you know. And I had also like, I had a couple of trombone players and, you know, it built up really, really well. And so by the end of the set, it was just like, you know, people went crazy, you know, and that was a moment of like the, the MC had introduced me as, okay, for many years, this guy was as you in the audience attending the festival. Now he's here on stage. So that was perfect because the audience was already, you know, kind of with me. And then at the end of the set, this incredible ovation, I thought, it doesn't get any better than this, you know? From the moment I first heard this music, whatever, 25 years ago, and, and then I, I was going off stage and they were wanting an encore. And the MC was saying in French, yes, this was fantastic, ladies and gentlemen, but I, I'm so sorry, we're running behind and there's no time for an encore. And it's in the middle of that, the crowd went, they just roared at him. <laughs> he, he backed away from the microphone and said, mm, you better do another song. <laughs> you know, that probably is, you know, that was just a super big highlight for me. Wow. You know, um, wow. But there's been many, I mean, playing on Bonnie Raitt's Nick of Time. Oh. I had heard that she was going to do an album and that Don was, was going to produce it. And I'd met Don was um, when I was playing with Katie Lang and Roy Orbison on a television show. And then after that, I saw this article. that said Don was going to produce Bonnie Raitt. I thought, that, that'd be cool. Ooh, I'd love to play on that. And then I didn't hear anything for a long time. And I got a phone call from Don when I was on in some Motel 6 in North Carolina with Desert Rose Band playing at a country festival or something. And he tracked me down and I said, oh, Don, I've been here and was not was, you know, on the radio. Everybody walked the dinosaur. It's so cool. Congratulations. And and uh, and he said, I read somewhere that you were producing an artist that I really like, but I can't remember who it was. He says, "Uh, yeah, that's what I'm calling you about. It's Bonnie Raitt. I want you to come and play on it. Unbelievable. Wow. And then watching that album win so many Grammys that year and. And uh, I get Alan and winning a Grammy myself. That was a dream come true too. With uh, thanks to Brad Paisley, you know, because the Grammy was with him and and uh, James Burton and Albert Lee and Vince Gill, and, uh, and I, I was the only one there at the ceremony, so I got to <laughs> accept it. I was nominated for two two. Uh, Grammys that year. The other was for Best Bluegrass Album with Earl Scruggs. And unfortunately, he lost to Ricky Skaggs, who was doing a tribute to the original Bluegrass band featuring Earl Scruggs. (laughs) So it was like Earl was competing with himself in a way. but And he lost to himself. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, oh, I don't know. It's it's just been... And and to be honest, I, I went through a pretty bad depression you know, after a couple months into the pandemic. And I realized because, you know, I get much of my energy and feed from an audience and performing. And also my social life is pretty much based around 
you know, who I was playing with and who I would see on tour and stuff. Yeah. You know, friends are all around the world. And so not getting to see my friends and not getting to perform and not getting to see my family, there was not a energy feed coming into me, you know? Uh, and I just got to a place where I had been a couple of times in my life where I, but you know what? I've got to do so many cool things in my life. If nothing ever happens again, like that, I'm, I'm still, I still won, you know, I'm still really lucky. Yeah. So now it sort of feels every once in a while, I have that feeling again, you know, I mean, playing with Bruce and Martin, it takes really a good time. And, and also with Frank Mignola before Bruce was here, um, one gig we did in, in uh, St. Louis, there was four encores for a jazz guitar trio. How does that happen? You know, it's like insane. And I did enough gigs with my bluegrass band recently where I felt my mandolin chops were back and I wasn't struggling and I could do try different shit. And, and I, my vocals were back and I could sing without gasping for air. <laughs> I went, okay, it's starting to feel a little bit like the before times, you know, every now and then. So uh, just, I don't know. I'm very grateful and a grateful vibe right now. That's that's amazing, man. Well, I, we love what you do, man, and uh, always been such a big fan. And it's so awesome that you and Bruce and, and Martin are out there doing a good thing. I'm bummed that I don't get to see it, but maybe next time. Yeah, maybe there. Hopefully, there will be another yeah, time. I'm sure hoping you know, for it, but you it's, know, I'm it, enjoying this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in, being in the moment and. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because Bruce and I have so many people in common from so many years. And, and Martin, I first saw playing with David Grisman. Well, he's playing with Stefan Grappelli on a tour with David Grisman back in 1981 or something. You know, and we run into each other many times over the years. Played together a couple of times, but never like, you know, consecutively where you could actually build a vibe, you know. Yeah. So it's... Uh, it's it's just been really nice and it's surprising that at my age there's still new <laughs> new things to do and new people to meet and play with and it's it's great. It's awesome. So where are you today? I'm I'm I've got Nashville in Nashville. Okay. So you you get a home in Nashville and Ventura, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll be back in Nashville. Um, we have an apartment in, in East Nashville, across, oh, okay. right from the basement east in that yep. that area. Yeah, I'm over near twelfth no. Twelfth Avenue area, Twelfth South. Oh, okay. Avenue. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, both the, two of the coolest areas of Nashville, I would say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Very cool. So. Um, and then coming up, I don't know if you'll be in Nashville in end of September, but uh, the Country Music Hall of Fame is putting together an exhibit that encompasses Cal uh, not California, Los Angeles based, Southern California based uh, bluegrass country and country rock from the early 60s to the early 90s. Oh, wow. So it kind of starts with the bluegrass of the Dillards and Tony Rice and Chris Hillman and Bernie Ledden and, you know, those really early California bands for Peterson. And then it goes until the early 90s with Desert Rose Band and Dwight Yoakam. And in between, you know, Poco, The Birds, South Carolina Fure, the Flying Burrito Brothers, Linda Ronstadt, Rick Nelson, Michael Nesmith, um, blah, 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 all those Eagles, you know, all of those 
bands. And so uh, they're doing a show to kick off the exhibit. And uh, they asked me to be the musical director of that show at, the, at their theater there. And, and I know that Richie Ture and Bernie Ladin and Chris Hillman and Herb Peterson and Rodney Dillard uh, and Jeff Hanna, uh, so far they're all on board and hopefully like uh, Dan Dugmore, Al Perkins, uh, J.D. Manus, Steve Duncan, uh, so it should be pretty fun, you know, in the exhibit, I, I gave my uh, turquoise Rickenbacker 450 12 string and a matching turquoise box AC30 amp for the exhibit in my uh, my first Manuel suit that I had made for that band. Oh, man, I got to well, I'll be here. So I think my parents will be here from Australia. So we'll have to come and check that out. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Come out. I'm, I'm going into the so studio. Weird. I'm going in the studio next week with Dave Rowe. Do you know Dave Rowe, the bass player? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're oh, going to RCA Studios next week to record. What are you stuff. recording? Just original, original songs that I wrote. So, uh, song. yeah. Fantastic. Who else yeah. would be? Sorry. Who else do you have, who else do you have playing? Uh, Bob Britt. Do you know Bob? Yeah. Yeah. Bob Britt on guitar, and then a, an Australian drummer, Jared. Um, get his last name on drums. So uh, yeah, it should be fun. Deal. RCA Studios there in Studio C. Pedal Steel? No Pedal Steel yet, but we might bring that in later. Yep. Okay. Nice. Yeah. So, so RCA, so you'll get an Elvis vibe going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I guess <get> going. <laughs> ah, fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> Elvis Dundee will call you. Yeah. <laughs> I know you guys have got to run. Um, thank you so much for the time, man. It's uh, a real pleasure. I emailed you. Three years ago, about being on Guitar Wank, and I know you got really busy, so uh, I, I didn't bug you anymore. But this is perfect timing. So, well, thank you thank, so much. Thank you for being patient. I think uh, I was telling Bruce, I, I went also went through a period where I was just like, I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't want to be very outgoing. I guess I don't know. That's yeah. so. <laughs> well, <laughs> glad, we're glad you're back. <laughs> yeah, much I to your really surprise. Hey, a real Shattered. pleasure and a real honor so thank you so much bruce as you always did. you guys go right. rock it and um thank you so much all right keep see you wanking. soon keep wanking <laughs> take care see you guys Bye.